It's great to hear the sound of everybody greeting each other. I was just having a conversation with someone um, in here this morning about how coming to church on a Sunday morning just centers them for the week, that things seem to go better, that they seem to respond better. And I do think it's a great testimony to what happens in here, that we set our hearts on Jesus, we fix our eyes on Jesus, and it centers us as we go into a week where we may, we may be encountering people who are not exactly on board with the things that we believe or the, the way we want to live our lives, and we got to be centered because we know that it is love that wins those battles. I was just messaging this morning with one of our partners, our tour guide, when our group went to Israel um, last year, um, Ronan, and he's doing okay in his family. Um, but the truth is, there's not a family in Israel right now that does not know of another family who has suffered grievous loss. It's like, it, geographically, just so you know how Israel works, it would be as if San Clemente launched a terrorist attack. That's how close it is. So imagine if 9-11 happened in San Clemente, how you would be feeling this morning. And so um, I just want to take a moment and pray for, really, as, we, as I've been there to Israel, I've been there five times now, um, the Israelis want peace. And the, the, the Arabs, there's also Arabs who live in Israel and Palestine, they want peace as well. There are small portions of people who want to sow chaos. Um, but people there, I've been to a barbecue with Arabs and Israelis together, breaking bread together. They want peace. And so let's just pray, as Sarah did, just quickly right now, for the peace of Jerusalem. Father, we come today, Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We come binding our hearts with those over there who are grieving, who don't know what's going forward. We know that there are some dark days ahead. We trust, Father, that you will chart a path for those who love peace. We know that you, Jesus, have said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. We pray that you would raise up peacemakers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very good. Thank you for, um, for praying in that way. Um, on another note, um, it's hard. how do you transition out of that stuff? We did, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we grieve with those who grieve. What we rejoice that there was a great day yesterday of our citywide volunteer day put on by Love Orange and that we had a, a major part in. I just wanted to thank all of you who were, hands up, who volunteered at the citywide serve day. Put, raise them high, keep them high, very good. There, and there's others that aren't here. Yeah, wonderful day. Um, we had those picking up trash on Tustin Avenue. Andrew was leading that. We had those up at Eisenhower Park. Brandon was leading that. Where are you at, Brandon? You're invisible to me. This, there you are. Okay. Um, and then we had a group down um, at, the, at Santiago Creek, partnering with the Santiago Creek Greenway Alliance. Um, we actually had the opportunity with the mayor, with the mayor of Orange, to fish shopping carts out of the creek. It was great. It was great to work alongside partners, neighbors. When I first came, it was just this idea like, we got to figure out how to be good neighbors and good partners in ministry. We partnered with many other churches, many other pastors. We were working alongside other people in the city, and that is a great, when we think about our purpose, love God, love others, love Orange, we did all three of those yesterday in Mass. And I just wanted to thank you guys all for doing that. Uh, it was a wonderful day in our city, and more, to, more of that to come, but it makes my heart, I was, so, I was so proud of our church. 
I was so proud of our church and just the way you guys were out there, just loving the community. It, it, it means a lot to me thinking about what God had put on my heart as we think about what this church can look like in this community as a, as a, a beachhead for the gospel, as a gathering place for those who want to be loved and want to love. This would be a place for that. So thank you so much. Um, we, went, we picked up 68 bags of trash. That's also. So that's nice too. So yeah, that's good. Ah, awesome. So anyway, thank you guys so much. All right. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Hebrews. Open up to the book of Hebrews. When I was 16 years old, a pastor who was a mentor invited me and three other high school students to come over to his house on Thursday mornings for a summer Bible study. I had responded in faith to Jesus only a couple years earlier, and um, I was learning what it means to worship, what it means to study the Bible, um, but still unfamiliar with large portions of the Bible, right? And, and even today, I still feel like there are portions of the Bible that are, um, are unexplored territory for me, even as a pastor. I don't know if you feel like that as well, but there are. That, that's just the way I think, I think it goes with the Bible, but I've been reading the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Gospels, memorizing verses, you know, hitting all the bangers on the verses, you know, John 3.16, you know, hit all the good ones. And he said, hey, let's study through the book of Hebrews. And that summer we jumped in. We dove in and we found that the book of Hebrews has so many great encouraging passages, gems of encouragement, words about Jesus that are really foundational for how we think about who Jesus is. Hebrews has wonderfully foundational passages. But we also found places where, though we jumped into a pool we thought we'd be swimming in, we realized we were wading knee-deep in mud. And we didn't know where we had landed. It felt like we we landed on another planet. And sometimes when we read through the book of Hebrews, there's things that we recognize and that it's wonderful. We see where God is working. And there's other times where we get into Hebrews and we're like, I I am in a foreign land. And I don't know what's going on. And so as we do that, felt like, so it it began with, for me personally, a a fascination with the book. And most of my my scholarly work, I have a PhD, um, published a few articles wrote a dissertation, presented a few papers at conferences. Most of my scholarly work has been done in the book of Hebrews. I've taught a seminary course a few times on the book of Hebrews, but I've never preached through the book of Hebrews. And so um, buckle up. I mean, here we go, right? Like, I don't know what you guys signed up for. I don't even know what I signed up for because I've never, like, preached through it. There's so much in this book And as I kind of go through, there's definitely going to be some in-the-weeds podcasts that come along, because there's a lot of places where you can get lost in the weeds in the book of Hebrews. But what I want to do is I want to just kind of break this down as we think about the book of Hebrews. Well, first of all, for those of you who do like to take notes, okay, and I I don't want to, you know, some people like to sit back and take it all in, which is great. Sometimes if you want to take notes, um, your Bible's a great place to take notes. Um, If you like to mark in your Bible, some of you guys have Bibles that are super marked up, and it's really a sign of as you grow in your faith, your maturity in, in Christ. Um, I don't like to mark in my Bible, and, which is, like, I, it's just my preference, um, but they have these great things, these ESV um, uh, study journals. And um, we have some out in the lobby. Um, they, they cost like five bucks, six bucks online. Just a $5 donation, grab one of these, but it has the text of Hebrews over on this side, and then places to take notes if you're interested in doing something like that. 
Um, they're out in the lobby. Feel free to grab one. Uh, if you don't have five bucks this week, bring it next week. That'll be fine. But um, th- these are kind of fun little things as we go through, because we're going to be in the book of Hebrews now, probably up until at least Easter, as we think about the, the journey ahead, the journey ahead. We're, there's a lot of journeys in the book of Hebrews. So that, those are available out there. Uh, so this great fascination as we get through, as we, as we think about Hebrews, um, it's less than a letter. A lot of times, we, if, you have a, your, if you have a King James version of the Bible, it will say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. And those, that, that's what we call a, a title or a superscription. That's not original to the book, that the author did not say either that this was a letter, an epistle. It's not a letter. It's actually a word of exhortation, more like a sermon that gets written down. Um, it's not actually probably written by Paul. Whoever wrote this book, only God knows. We don't know actually who wrote this book, and we actually don't know who it was written to either. So the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews is almost entirely like, meh, maybe. So the, but that's not the, 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 the titles are not inspired, okay? It's, it's the text of Scripture that's inspired. Uh, you're like, what, who, what kind of pastor is this guy? Okay, anyway. Um, so, written by God only knows to people who are in trouble, people who are under pressure, people who are in opposition, who are, who are in a culture that opposes them, that they're feeling, they're feeling some kind of pressure on them from an opposing culture and in danger of laying down their faith and turning back, not orienting towards God and towards what he's done in Jesus, but turning away from that, neglecting that, drifting from that. And so the writer of Hebrews embarks on this journey of how how do you address a group of people that are living in a culture that opposes them And they feel that pressure, and they're in danger of walking away. They're in danger of laying it down. They're in danger of turning back. What does the author do? Really, just as we think about the book of Hebrews, I'm just this morning going to orient us to what the book of Hebrews is. It's a sermon written by an unknown author to an unknown group of people. What we do know about them is they are under pressure. And he does three things, three major things in this book. One, he looks back into the Old Testament, to mistakes that have been made. He's particularly interested in the Exodus generation and their failure as they stand on the edge of the promised land, the the 12 spies episode, where they go into the land, they say it's a great land, but 10 of the spies say we shouldn't go in. And they convince all the people not to go in on that first round. That's a failure. And it has catastrophic implications for the nation of Israel, as they, as they are on the verge of the promised land, they decide not to go in. It's only a generation later that they move up by the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership, and they do move into the land. It's catastrophic. And so the author is like, we got to look back. It's kind of like the, the black box in an airplane after a crash. We got to plug the black box in, and we got to figure out what the heck went wrong. And he's going to do that. And we'll do that as a congregation as we look at this book, people who had promises but chose to neglect those promises to turn away. 
The other thing that the author does, he thinks it's important. If you're under pressure and you are in a, a place where you're in a, a, a culture that opposes you, that is not sympathetic to your beliefs, he thinks that the metaphor of journey is particularly helpful, that we are on a journey. And he talks about three different journeys, these three different metaphorical journeys that we are on. The journey out of the wilderness and into the promised rest. Does promised rest sound great? Like some of you guys, including me, are thinking of going home, turning on a football game, and basically sleeping through the third quarter. Okay? That is promised rest. But there's more rest than that. There's an ultimate, there's an ultimate finishing to this journey. This out of the wilderness and into promised rest. He also talks about this metaphor of journey out of our defilement, where we are defiled by sin, and the journey into the holy place, the holy of holies, on the coattails of Jesus, drawing near to God in worship. It's a journey out of defilement, into purification, into the holy of holies, on the, on the back of Jesus. And ultimately, one of, the, one of the metaphors, I think, to me that has been very encouraging in difficult times is simply this idea of the journey that Abraham had, where he journeyed and he wandered, he wandered around looking for the city of God. And he would not live in any other city. He chose tents instead of a bad city. He wouldn't go into any city unless it was the city of God, and he died without ever finding the city of God. The book of Hebrews says, we are on a journey, and we will find the city of God. We will arrive. We're on that journey. We're not lost. We are sojourners, and we're looking. We know our destination, but we're not quite exactly sure where it is. But you know who's going to show us? Jesus will, because he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He will lead us to the city of God. And so the author of Hebrews is like, you guys are on a journey. You're in trouble, but you're on a journey. And then finally what he does, and maybe this is the most important thing about Hebrews, and this is why we have our graphic up here, is he basically says, if you're going to make it on this journey, man, you got to lift Jesus up. You got to fix your eyes on Jesus, and you have to think about Jesus in the highest way possible. The passage that Sarah read this morning is just his, his opening salvo of who Jesus is, and we're going to take a look at it. And as he talks about this, you got to hold Jesus high. You got to hold, even when you think you've, only, you've got him high enough, you got to push higher. He is the one and only. Jesus is greater than everything. Everything. And what he's going to do is he's going to hold Jesus up to all the persons and institutions that had provided identity and grounding in their past and says, whatever you use to, to, to get a sense of who you are, whatever you've used in the past, Jesus is greater than all of those. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. And so that's, what, that's the recipe that he goes through. I, I keep saying he, right? This is the only book of the New Testament. No extra charge for this. Um, like you're like there's a charge um, this is the only book of the New Testament where you could actually make an argument that it was written by a woman Priscilla 
And actually, there's a couple people that have made that argument, and it's a pretty good argument. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it, but if I'm going to say we don't know who it is, it could be a she as well, okay? So anyway, like I said, I think it's kind of fascinating to me. There's no other book of the New Testament where you can make that argument. So, okay, you're like, let's keep going, Pastor Craig. Okay, all right. So let's talk a little bit. In your, in your bulletin, there's a, there's a little outline and I don't want you to scrap it entirely, but I actually would like you, um, we're going to flip some things around, uh, but it, it's in there as well. So let's talk a little bit about when we open up the book of Hebrews, it's kind of like landing on another planet with a different atmosphere, a different understanding of the world. And so what we need to do, first of all, is we need to understand the author of Hebrews and the audience of Hebrews, how did they understand the world? How did they understand the powers of the cosmos? How did they understand what God was like and what humanity was like? And in the ancient world, the understanding of this, that there was, there was a realm in which God dwelled, the heavenly realm, and there was a realm in which humans lived, and that is the earthly realm. And we, in our Lord's Prayer, we talked about in heaven, as it is in heaven, so also on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And those two realms were, were somewhat separated, and that they weren't, they weren't naturally connected. As a matter of fact, what they looked at is they looked at kind of this like hourglass in which Heaven would come down to a certain point, oftentimes a, a geographical location or a, a place or, a, or an artifact in wh- where God could come from heaven or, a, or anything from heaven could make its way to earth. And that humanity, you had this large, you had the earth, and you would have this funnel leading up to, to heaven. How you got to heaven, you had to get to a certain place or a certain artifact or something like that, that in order for heaven and earth to meet, you had to meet in the right place, in the right time with the right people in order to make that journey from earth to heaven. And one of the things that we find in the ancient world is there was all this talk about there would be times when God in the heavenlies would send down emissaries, like angels. Angels would be heavenly emissaries that are sent down. Or there would be times when on earth, certain humans would be raised up as mediators. Maybe priests or prophets or someone like Moses would be raised up. Or there would be certain places like Jerusalem or the temple or artifacts that would be used like the Ark of the Covenant or or the tabernacle, places or things in which the right people at the right time that you could have, you could get to a place where God would stand on one side of the window and you would stand, the high priest would stand on the other side of the window and they would talk to each other. Technically, that's what the Day of Atonement was in Jewish law. It was the one day of the year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and go to the Ark of the Covenant, look through underneath the, like Indiana Jones, right, with the with the, with the wings of the cherubim, and he would look through, and it, he would be able to converse with God through that little window. And so that was the understanding of the world, the thought world. And what the author of Hebrews wants to do is he says, hey, you guys know you think about it like this, how God is sending these emissaries down like angels, messengers, or b- raising people up. What I want to tell you, my job here in this book, is what I want to tell you is that every intermediary, every mediator that has come down out of heaven and every intermediary mediator that is raised up from the earth, Jesus outdoes. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Greater than Joshua. 
greater than Levitical high priests. He offers his sacrifice in a greater tabernacle. He offers a greater sacrifice by a greater priest. He's the priest. He offers himself as a sacrifice. And what does he do? He goes up into heaven. He goes into the real place, the real tabernacle, the real presence of God, and he presents himself as blood before the Father, and God says, once and for all it is done. There is no greater intermediary. If you're looking to an intermediary, another intermediary, to get you to, G- to, get you to God, other than Jesus, you have misplaced your attention. Boy, doesn't that sound eerily contemporary today? If you have placed your focus on any other intermediary to get you to God other than Jesus, your attention is misplaced. If the author of Hebrews were here today, he would simply say this, Jesus is greater than anything that you can imagine that can get you to God. Anything. And he goes through basically the book is all about that. And understanding that thought world helps us understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. Let's look at the first couple verses in Hebrews. Hebrews 1. By the way, in, in Hebrews, one of the other, another no extra charge on this, the, the, the Greek of Hebrews is the fanciest Greek of the New Testament. It's the most flowery, fanciest, closest to classical Greek that we have in the New Testament. That's one of the reasons why most people don't think that the Apostle Paul wrote this, because his books are in kind of street language. Like, he kind of swears in some of his books. Like, it's, yeah, yes. The Bible's a very gritty book, okay? But Hebrews is is very, the rhetorical flourishes in Hebrews are, 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 are very close to classical Greek. And this looks, that's what it looks like in 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So if you think about this, in the past, God has spoken. He's revealed himself. If you look back in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what these people who received this just called the Bible, the scriptures, If you look back in the scriptures, you would see many portions and in many ways, God has revealed himself. And as we look through the book, it kind of works out that way. In chapter 1, God revealed himself through divine messengers, angels. Angeloi are messengers. He revealed himself in messengers. That's chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is greater than angels. Chapters 3 and 4. Moses and Joshua. Moses led the people out of, the, out of captivity and to the edge of the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land. Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. Chapters 4 through 7, Jesus is greater than the Levitical high priests. Chapters 9 and 10, Jesus is greater than Levitical sacrifices. Chapter 9, Jesus does his work in a tabernacle that is greater than any earthly place of worship. Chapter 8, Jesus Jesus' new or renewed covenant is greater than the previous covenant. Anything that has been sent down from the heavenly realms or raised up from earthly authority, Jesus is greater than. Listen to this. There's a better hope. There's better promises. There's a better covenant. There's better sacrifice. There's a better inheritance received in a better place for a better life. 
That word better occurs 12 times. Better, greater than. By the time you get to chapter 11 and 12, you've got all these examples of faith, the hall of faith, right? But chapter 12, 1, what is Jesus? He's the inventor and perfecter of faith. There's no example of faith better than him. He had to put his trust in his father. As he endured the cross, scorning its shame, that's faith. And he leads us to a greater destination. Jesus, Hebrews is on a grand and overarching scale, hammering home the point that Jesus is greater than anything, any intermediary, any authority. And so that's the book. That's the book in, in a nutshell. We're going to find out that as the author makes, the, makes that argument, he's going to take these side, these side journeys where he's going to talk about, uh, kind of encourage them, he's going to exhort them. So we have these two, we have, a, we have the, uh, uh, the exposition, these are the fancy words, you have the exposition where he goes through and he talks about Jesus is greater than, and then you have the exhortations. Watch out, hang on, stay with us, don't give up. So exposition and exhortation, we're going to talk through all of those things. So in the past, God has spoken in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, how has he revealed himself? With a son. With a son. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen to how he's described. He is appointed heir of all things, through whom he's also created the world. He's the radiance of his glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we just unpack this, I'm going to just unpack some of the terms there. But as we do this, one of the things we, one of the tensions that we have to recognize to the writer of this as well as the people who received this, the people who, fo- who followed Jesus were Jewish. You read the Gospels, you guys, anybody watch The Chosen, right? All, they're all Jewish. All of Jesus' disciples are all Jewish. And one of the things, as, as a good Jew, every day, you would recite a prayer, which is called the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema. Hear Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was, what, it, it was a prayer that was given to the nation of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, polytheism, and coming into Canaan, the promised land, polytheism, what was going to set them apart is that they only worshipped one God, the God of all gods, the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, one God. And one of the things, as as a Jewish follower of Jesus, one of the big tensions that people had to deal with after following Jesus was just this question about, how do we talk about Jesus? We've walked with him, like, do we call him God, or do we call him something else? Like, I'm Jewish, and there's only one God, and, but Jesus was here, and yet he called God his Father. So how do we, how do we, we you might be resolved with this tension, because you're like, look, Pastor Craig, it's called the Trinity. And it's like, well, thank you very much. You've had 2,000 years of theological development to help sort that out. But the people who originally heard this, they're like, what do we do? Like, how do we do this? I can't, like, and what what we start to see is that they start to say, I can't say anything else about Jesus except 
that what God does, Jesus does. What God is, Jesus is. Richard Bauckham calls it the Christology of divine identity, but it's essentially this, that they decide that whatever God is and God does, that is what Jesus is and what Jesus does. We walked with him, we were amazed by him, we can't say anything less. And the the author of Hebrews is right in that journey of saying, and this is one of the things that the, the followers of Jesus, this is why they're under pressure. Because if you're in a synagogue and you start saying Jesus is God, it's only a matter of time before the synagogue leaders are like, hey, yo, there's only one God. And we're, well, yeah, well, God the Father and God the Son, and yeah, this Holy Spirit thing, that's happening too. Like, and they're like, look, we're not in, like, you guys, you can't be, we're not going to let you stick around. And you start to have this parting of the ways between what we call rabbinic Judaism and messianic Judaism, essentially. That the early Jesus movement was about, was really Jewish literature of the first century. The book of Hebrews is Jewish literature of the first century. Now, we look at it, we, we have a very clear, like, oh, there's Christianity and there's Judaism. They didn't have that clear parting of the ways. This is, we're right in the middle of that parting of the ways. As we hear the author of Hebrews talk about who Jesus is, listen to what he calls him. And it, but it, I think it's beautiful the way he does this. The first thing he says, in the past he spoke in many portions and in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days, how has he spoken? In a son. God the Father has a son. There's a family resemblance. How do we talk about Jesus as God and God the Father as God? We talk about father and son. A name that cannot be claimed by any other intermediary. Coming down from angels are called messengers. Moses was called a servant. Jesus is a son. Those are different. It also says that the son is called the heir of all things. He appointed heir of all things in verse 2. Even if there are other heirs who are to come, and we're called heirs as well, but Jesus is called the favored heir, the firstborn, the prototokos. He is the favored heir. He is the son and an heir and the favored heir. It also says that he is, in look in verse uh, 3, he is the radiance of his glory. He is the radiance of his glory. When you think about the radiance, radiance, God has a glory. I guess this is the question, like, where does God's glory begin, and when it radiates out, where does it end? It's kind of like the sun. There's going to be an eclipse, I think, this month. Don't look at it because it's not a full eclipse. Um, but um, there's certain things in an eclipse, like in a full eclipse, you can see the corona of the sun that you can't necessarily see. But the question is, where does the sun begin and end? Like, you've got the big ball in the sky, but you experience the sun as heat and as light, Like, is the heat that we feel, is that part of the sun as well? And I think this is the point that the author is making, is that Jesus, Jesus is revealing who God is, and he is God, but he's not like like the big ball in the sky, he's the heat and the light coming off of God, the Father. He calls him also the imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of of his nature. The word there for imprint is the word character. And when you would, in the ancient world, when you would mint coins, you would get a, like a soft piece of precious metal, like silver or gold. And whatever you wanted that coin to look like, you would have, you'd have this little striking 
point. And you would take, you would take your little minting, uh, what is it called? I was just looking this up. Uh, a minting die. And you would take it over, the, over the, the soft coin and you would hammer it on and it would leave its character, its imprint. And so whatever God is, Jesus is the minting die. Boom. Jesus is the exact, the essential imprint of God. It says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Another way to, to translate that, Jesus bears all things. It also means he, carry, he carries all things by the word of his power. What only God did in the Old Testament. God, God did that in the Old Testament. God bore all things. Now the author of Hebrews says, Jesus bears all things. Whatever God did in the Old Testament, Jesus is now ascribed with doing. In verse 2 it said that it is through Jesus that God created the world. And it also says about Jesus. After, in verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down. He makes pur- purification for sins. So chapters 4 through 10, essentially, in the book of Hebrews, are about how Jesus makes purification for sin. Spent a great deal of space talking about where this happens, how Jesus is both priest and sacrifice, and how he goes into the presence of the Father to present his own blood as the once-for-all-time sacrifice for your sins and my sins and all who have faith in Jesus. And then another very important thing about Jesus, that though Jesus, if you think about Philippians 2, he was in the very form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and he became a a human being and he became a slave and he became a, a slave to the point of death, even death on a cross, but God raised him up. And now, after he's done this work, after he's done the work of atonement, what has he done? He's come up, he's come to the Father, he's presented himself as redeemed humanity, he's fully human, but redeemed and resurrected. He presents his own blood before the Father, and the Father says, that's done, have a seat. Be enthroned. Be enthroned. He sat down. When you see sat down in your Bible, you need to think enthroned. He has become enthroned. And that's really from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is going to be a big, I'm really, like you guys are getting a fire hose this morning. Thank you so much. Like you're scribbling madly down. But this idea of enthronement, it's important that Jesus is the king of the universe. And I think what's really cool about the author of Hebrews is he's like, hey, Jesus is the king of the universe. And in chapter two, he's going to say, I know you guys aren't experiencing Jesus as the king of the universe right now. And when we get there, we're going to talk about this, but I want to at least say something right now. There's a good chance right now in our world, like you're not experiencing Jesus as king of the universe. You turn on the TV, and there's plenty of other kings and armies and political parties and corporations that all are vying for this position of wealthiest person on the world, wealthiest business, best industry, most powerful nation. All of that is going on. As a matter of fact, in in chapter 2, he talks about Jesus is greater than angels, but we do not always see him as greater. We see him below that. We see him overpowered. 
by Roman soldiers. We see him hanging on a cross. And even though he's been resurrected, we don't always see and appreciate the power that is going on around us. And this is the tension that the author is feeling with the audience, that we feel the pressure of this world coming in, and yet Jesus is seated on the throne. What is going on? And the author says, hey, I'm going to join my voice with the thousands that have come before, and I'm going to say, have faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Have faith. You're going to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and this great cloud of witnesses is just going to stand around and say, you've got to have faith. You've got to believe. You've got to believe Jesus is coming. Jesus will lead you to the city of God. Do not doubt. Do not give up. Do not give up. He is there. He is powerful. He loves you. He is coming. Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer. As we kind of wrap this up, I want to say, you know, when the chips are down and there's opposition and there's more dark than light, when the wind is not at your back, when things are not going as well as you had hoped, when you're wondering where God is, the author of Hebrews is going to be there to remind us what you do is you fix your eyes on Jesus. If you just turn real quickly over to chapter 12, this is really the climax of the book. Chapter 12 and verse 1. says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. That word endurance is a significant word in the book of Hebrews. That's what we need. We need endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus had to endure. Jesus had faith. We are called to have faith and endure. Despising its shame and is now seated, enthroned at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. As we go through this book, I simply want to recognize that there are days where it might be wearisome and you might be weary about your faith. You might be weary about God or about Jesus or about church. I mean, we are in a, we're in a time where people are talking about deconstructing their faith. And I don't think it's a bad thing to have second thoughts about the things that you've always believed. That's called moving from kind of an embedded faith to an intentional faith. Every person has to own your faith for yourself. And sometimes the faith of your parents, there are certain things that you say, I don't necessarily want that, but I want the important things, the right things, the things about Jesus. And so we live in this time of deconstruction. But what I want to encourage is that as weary as you are, don't throw the proverbial baby Jesus out with the bathwater. Do not grow weary and lose heart. And I think it's important as we gather together 
that we have examples of faith all around us, sitting beside us, encouraging us, not simply from the past, but encouraging us in the pew next to us. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who walk through the valley of the shadow of deep darkness and yet have praise and trust in the Lord because they have fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. I need to see examples of faith. There are days where I am weary. I am weary. I look at the, the mountains around. Sometimes we stand at the bottom of a large mountain and we wonder, how in the world am I going to get up that? We look at the opposition around us and we wonder, how am I going to withstand that? How am I going to stay faithful with that going on? And we need examples of people around us. Voices, a cloud of testimony. Have faith with me. Have faith with me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Have faith. So if you're here, you're weary. Hebrews is for you. Jesus is for you. He's greater than anything. He's greater than any intermediary, anything that can take you to the Father. Jesus is better than. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Let's pray. Father, I really am excited to see what you have for us in this book. We recognize the Bible sometimes is difficult to understand. We recognize that um, just understanding the Trinity and Christology and who Jesus is is challenging. But we come today and the rest of this time in a position of faith-seeking understanding. We know that we do not know everything to a certainty. But we understand that we come from a position of faith, seeking understanding. We know that we have not had to bear faith alone. We know that Jesus had to put his trust in you, Father, as he hung on the cross at the hands of evil men, shaming him. He endured the cross. And so we now, as we experience opposition, we ask for your endurance and your perseverance in our lives. We give ourselves to you and we worship you this morning. Jesus, we recognize you are greater than anything in this universe. And we lift you up. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>